Our scripture today uh, comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 1 to 6. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord has risen upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. There are some situations where evil is so prevalent that it doesn't look like there's any good solutions. In those times, all of a place's institutions are so broken that even trying to fix them only makes things worse. Those are times where the word darkness is the best word for what you're experiencing. Because darkness doesn't only mean that something's bad but that you can't see well enough to fix it. The darkness where the power goes out at night is a bad thing, but not being able to see the circuit breaker makes the darkness a whole other problem. The darkness of evil is a lot the same. Everyone knows something is wrong, but they're clueless about how, what to do about it. That's the kind of situ situation that Israel often found themselves in. Sin would be so prevalent that setting things right wasn't even as simple as some individuals to act to justify themselves. You couldn't just get a new king to sweep everyone out and charge out or get some new prophet that actually speaks the truth. The whole system would have to be changed, but there's no real obvious answer as to how that would be done. Here's an example. In the book of Amos, the poor would be trampled underfoot by the powerful people like kings and nobles. They would make laws that only cut in their favor. They would bribe judges so that they would rule in favor of them even if they're guilty and all that. But the king would have complete control over the priests because the priests know where their bread is buttered. So the priests would be 100% in favor of everything the king did, no matter what the Torah said. Prophets would say all these things about God's wrath coming because of these evil priests. But you couldn't get rid of the priests without the permission of the king. So then you might think, okay, let's get rid of the king. But the problem is that the king was kept in power by the rich nobles. And the rich nobles want the kind of king that forces the priests to only be in favor of the rich. You might get rid of the king, but the nobles will only pull up a new king that would be just as bad as the one you got rid of. So then you might think, the people should rise up against the nobles. But the problem is that the general populace, including the poor, have totally bought into the things that the priests were saying, that God was totally 100% in favor of everything that the rich and nobles and kings were doing. In their minds, rebelling against the king and the nobles might just be rebelling against God. Besides, the priests say that their lives are good and the king is just, and why should they question them? So you'd have a really hard time banding together enough people to get rid of the king and the nobles. In the end, you'd have a system where there's rampant sin and idolatry, where people are sold for a pair of shoes and they have no recourse. But really, you'd have no idea what to do about it. Over the course of years and years, they'd twist themselves into a pretzel and spin themselves a web of sin so that not sinning becomes unbelievably hard. Everything you do participates in that system. 
Everything in the whole society weaponizes itself to punish anyone who might try to live a godly life. You can probably think of similar situations, whether historically or in your own experiences, that sound a lot like that. Times where you get frustrated because you have no idea how to live. We're doing the right thing, which seems like it should be straightforward, looks crooked because you don't experience it yourself. And that's because humans are really good at twisting themselves into sin pretzels and that don't seem to have any way out. In those situations, you can only describe what you're experiencing as darkness. It's not just darkness because it's bad, but it's darkness because you can't see clearly enough to make it right, or even see clearly enough to live righteously by yourself and mind your own business. All you can do is grope around in the dark and hope for the best. This is the kind of situation that Isaiah was describing in the previous chapter, Isaiah 59. He says that Israel's sin and evil that it perpetrates against everyone was what was stopping him from coming and saving them. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. This obviously was a huge problem. The fact that Israel even existed at this point was a miracle wholly dependent on God. They lived between all kinds of powerful foreign empires, and if God wasn't on their side, those empires would inevitably overtake them. But the problem wasn't easily solved either. They couldn't just sweep out their king or rise up against the nobles or replace the priests. They couldn't even mind their own business and have individuals act righteously by themselves. Their society had made everything crooked, so that made it complicated to figure out what righteousness looked like. In fact, towards the end of the kingdom of Judah, there's a remarkable story where a couple of the king's servants just happened to stumble onto a copy of the Torah, and everyone saw it and marveled about it like it was some great revelation. The clear and remarkable implication was that the law that God gave Israel to show them how to be righteous was completely lost for centuries and forgotten. Nobody remembered how to act justly or to please God. So Isaiah continues, Therefore righteousness is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Even the best among them could do no more than stumble around and grope at the walls as they tried to do the right thing. There was no direction for anyone. And as so often happens when this is the case, it leads to disaster. It makes for a society where nobody can trust anyone, which means everything goes downhill. In sociology, they call this a low-trust society. This has real effects on everybody's lives. Economically, this means that people's labor isn't used effectively. Instead of paying people like farmers or merchants to produce things, you end up having to divert your money off as protection and security guards because you can't trust that people won't steal from you. That raises the prices of all the products that people need to buy. You can't make long-term investments in that kind of society either. For instance, the best kind of investment that people made in Israel was planting a vineyard since you could sell wine for a lot of money. 
The problem was that vineyards would take about 30 years to mature. So they would have grapes that were good enough for wine. It was a very long-term investment. You had to have a lot of trust that the vineyard would actually survive that long. If wars and bandits came by and destroyed the vineyard, you'd lose your entire investment. For that reason, you knew times were good if people were planting vineyards, because they had a reasonable expectation that they would actually see the fruits of their labor. All of this was especially bad for the weak ones in society. People could band together and steal from the weak, and they'd have no judge to appeal to who wouldn't take a bribe against them. And whatever judges that were just wouldn't last very long, because they would be yanked out for one that would, make a, that would take a bribe. The prices for everyday necessities were impossibly high. Finally, if you can't trust anyone, you become isolated. We were made to live in community with each other, which is something I know more coming out of isolation from COVID than I ever did. The first couple days were really good. I got a lot of stuff done, and I was able to rest a lot. But by the end, I was acting really weird. <laughs> I watched several hours of videos for a game that I played like five years ago. <laughs> it made no sense. I'm an introvert but I really missed seeing people. We all probably had some experience of this during lockdowns too. We feel like we might have lost some of the bonds we once had, and we miss them. As you might be able to expect, historically low trust societies don't have a great track record for survival. And the same thing ends up happening for Israel. The Babylonian empire invaded, Israel couldn't band together to form an effective resistance, and they were carried off far away from their homeland. All this to say that justice has a real tangible effect on all of us. For a lot of us, we're so used to seeing something close to justice that we kind of lost appreciation for it. For others, it's not hard at all to see it because we might have seen very clearly what a society without justice looks like. Doing the right thing isn't just something you do to keep a clean conscience. It's the main thing that keeps us from collapsing into a low trust society and keeps us from spiraling into destruction because it affects all of us eventually. This is one way of looking at absolute objective moral reality. It's the kind of principles that help develop high trust societies that allow people to flourish. It's the kind of thing that really actually plays out in the real world, not just in our minds. But sometimes darkness hides justice from us. And even if we knew what justice was, we wouldn't be able to put it into practice. As this passage suggests though, this darkness wasn't just the experience of Israel, but the experience of everyone across the whole earth. The problem is much bigger, and it's not just a problem of one country that couldn't get stuff together, but instead this one country was representative of everyone. And of course, we can probably say something like, duh, we've experienced it ourselves. Since the day that sin entered the world, everyone lived in darkness, because justice and what it looked like to live a righteous life became hidden to them. The simple straight path of virtue became crooked because we couldn't see it. Just like Israel, all the world was left in deep darkness, blind and groping around. Humans are social creatures, and the behaviors we follow are almost always the ones that are modeled for us. It takes great effort for us to actually change our behaviors unless we have someone model it for us. What that means is that sin tends to multiply down the generations and only makes things worse. So we know very well what darkness looks like. But Isaiah gives the answer to how Israel's darkness will be solved and what it will look like when the darkness is dispelled and the light returns. He says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills 
and all the nations will flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In fact, all throughout the book of Isaiah, the word light is used as a metaphor for God's presence. The world, with all its darkness and unsolvable injustice, can only be saved by the presence of God. One of the most important innovations of the Old Testament is the idea that there is a God who is willing to reveal himself, and that this God is the source of all justice and wisdom, the kind of things that get rid of this darkness. And he's the source, true source of the moral logic of the universe that makes for functional relationships between people. In the ancient Near East, the region where Israel existed, all the surrounding countries were extremely religious. Practically everything they had to do had something to do with the gods. They thought that the gods controlled everything. But there was one kind of weird exception of something that they considered pretty secular. And that was wisdom and how people should treat each other. But for the Old Testament, God was extremely concerned with justice. To the point that he even hated the sacrifices of Israel if they weren't the being kind to each other. He first revealed what justice and light looks like in the Torah. And all through the Old Testament, this revelation, revelation is associated with light. You might remember the story of how Moses returns to the people of Israel from Mount Sinai with the law, and his face is shining so brightly that no one can look at him. The people of Israel were supposed to follow the law and spread that light all around the world so that the darkness could go away and the world be saved from destroying itself. You can see that in the first verse of our passage. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And notice, it's telling Israel to shine, not merely saying that God is shining. Israel would follow the law so well that their own light and the light of God would become almost indistinguishable. And that was their role from the beginning, to be the first captured beachhead where light would begin to spread through the whole world. Eventually, this passage says, everyone would recognize that God's law is the source of justice and light. First, all of the exiles of Israel would return to their homeland in this beautiful image. It says, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. But then it would be even better. Not only would the Israel's exiles return, but the whole world would come together in peace under the authority and justice of God. The ships that carried the exiles home would also include a number of people from every tribe, town, and nation who would join this new people. Jerusalem wouldn't only be restored, it would be made the center of the entire universe, like it always was supposed to be. And it would be far better than anyone expected. It says, then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea will be turned over to you, and the wealth of the nations will come to you. The promise was that the city that had become barren and uninhabited because everyone was deported would one day be the capital and center of the whole universe. A couple of weeks ago, I said that we shouldn't take down our Christmas lights just yet because Christmas is a 12-day-long holiday that lasts all the way until Epiphany, which is on January 6th. Of course, 
We were going to extend it a little bit longer to January 8th because that's when we celebrate Epiphany together as a church. But then I got COVID, so that meant that our Epiphany service was delayed another week. I was also pretty lazy this past week. All that to say that my Christmas lights are still up. <laughs> anyway, Epiphany is the day that we celebrate when the wise men came to bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the newborn King Jesus. As our passage says, it's the day when we celebrate when a multitude of camels covered you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba that came, and brought, they brought gold and frankincense, and good news, the praises of the Lord. Now, Israel ultimately failed to follow the law and bear God's light to the world. But God fulfilled this role himself. The wisdom and law and justice and light of God became a person in Jesus Christ, and he dwelled with us. And Jesus fulfilled the law that finally meant that the first beachhead of God's light was established in the world. And that meant that justice and light of God was finally going to be spread to us all. At first, the return of God's kingdom in Jesus meant that the exiled Jews would experience it. But just like in this passage, everyone was surprised to see that the number of people who came to God's new kingdom who weren't Jews would eventually outnumber the ones who were. And God's kingdom became one that came from every tribe, tongue, and language in the world. And these wise men were the first Gentiles to recognize it. At Epiphany, we celebrate that God's light, law, and justice, which became incarnate in Jesus Christ, spread to all of us Gentiles also. And the role of Israel was fulfilled single-handedly by Jesus. And that light was most obvious on the cross, where God showed the world what it truly means to be human which is to empty yourself and give yourself up in love. And in losing your life, you'd find it. And then through Jesus' resurrection, he inaugurated a new kind of life, which is one that's totally infused with the light and perfect righteousness of God. And the church has been infused with this new kind of life. And so now, the church is given a really similar task to what Israel had. We are called to bear God's light into the world. The beachhead has been established in Jesus, and now the invasion force of peace and justice has spread to billions of people. But there are plenty of places that are still dark, not just because there's evil in it, but because nobody knows how to fix it. But we have the answer, and that's the light of the presence of God, which is the same light that the first Gentile wise men recognized all those years ago. We follow the example of Jesus, sacrificing ourselves in service of our neighbor and looking out for the interests of others and not our own forgiving sins and not holding them against others. And there at least we have the start of what light shining in the darkness really looks like. And one day, the pain and suffering of that kind of darkness will go away. Isaiah says, the sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. Let's pray. Lord, you are the light of the world and the perfection of its goodness. Cleanse our hearts with the presence of your Holy Spirit so we can shine brightly into the darkness of this world. King Jesus, come quickly to be our light so that the days of our mourning will be ended. 
for the glory and splendor of your kingdom, we pray. Amen.